Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to normalize grief and loss through candid conversations and shared experiences. Hosted by me, Sally Douglas, and me, Imogen Khan. We unfortunately joined the club that nobody wants to be part of when we both lost our mums unexpectedly. This podcast aims to create a space to openly discuss what grief is like and provide comfort for those who might be going through a similar experience. We'll shed light on an often taboo subject with honesty, hope and a little bit of humour. Please note we do talk about suicide in today's episode, which some listeners may find triggering. So if you or someone you know is struggling, please know that you're not alone and help is out there. We've provided the link to Lifeline in our show notes. So today we're going to be talking to a very special guest, Sally Steele. Sally is a style and mindset mentor, author of the incredible self-love manual, Dare More, Care Less, and host of the brilliant new podcast, The Sally Steele Show, and mum to two daughters. We're both massive fans of Sally and are incredibly honoured to have her joining us today to share her story on how her experience with grief and loss transformed her life and put her on the path to where she is today. Welcome, Sally Steele. Oh, that's really like, I got a little kind of like a little tear in my eye. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> what a great intro. You need to be my hype girl. <laughs> well, we are massive, massive fans and we're so happy to have you as our first guest we're on so excited. Good Morning. So thank you so I'm much. I'm like the first one. Yeah, our first interview oh guest. Oh my yeah. God. How <laughs> exciting. Oh, that's really, I feel very very honored to be asked to be on this podcast and I think that it's such an incredibly incredibly needed podcast and something that I know will really help so many people um not just people who are going through grief and loss but also those around them you know people supporting Um, yeah yeah because I don't think people know what to do That's absolutely right. And I think that's why we wanted to start this podcast to help not only people who are experiencing grief and loss, but also those that are supporting someone going through a difficult time, because it can be so hard to know what to do. And I think by opening up that conversation, hopefully, we can make it something that's a little bit more openly discussed. Because it is a hard thing. And if you haven't gone through a big loss, you don't know what to say. I don't I think before I lost my mum, I probably wouldn't have known what to do no. or say you know it's very surreal and it's very abstract and that in the same way that in the same way when you know you don't really know how to handle someone who's gone through like a life-threatening illness or mm-hmm. you don't know how someone even even something that is not really traumatic but you know like even going through birth and early motherhood it's kind of you can try and understand it but I you know, unless you've actually been through it, you really have no sense of the enormity and the and and just the kind of how full on it is. And I definitely feel very grateful that now that I've gone through the process of loss with my dad, I really love the fact that I've had friends in the last seven years since he passed who have lost someone. And I know that I can totally be there for them and we can have really frank conversations about it all. Um, and I think that that's the gift that you get to kind of pass on. Yeah, it's not until you go through it yourself where you kind of get that compassion for them and understanding of what it's really like to lose someone close to you. It's mm-hmm. 
life-altering experience. And when you've been well, through it yourself, you want to pay it forward to those who experience it. You want to pay it forward to people who have experienced loss and are going through a similar situation because you know just how hard it is. It's so important, I think, to have that mindset. Yeah, the thing is, is that we're just not trained, you know? We're not trained there's how no to manual cope for this, with is it. <laughs> no. We're, you know, like there's lots and lots of books on motherhood now, you know, and parenting. They're like, there's more than you can shake a sparkly stick at. But I remember when I was in grief and even throughout quite a lot of the stages, like I, I fucking Googled it. Like I was like, is it normal to feel like blah, 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 like trying to find some answers as to the way I was like feeling and like reading those seven stages of grief. I think that's the only thing, that only kind of thing I, I found and kind of going, oh, is this guilt? Is this anger? Is this denial? I, I have no fucking idea. And it you know? changes so rapidly, doesn't it? Like one one day you might be feeling guilt and then the next day anger and then denial. It's not linear, I've found. It's sort of just, no. it just moves from different stage to different stage. And also it's so different for every single person. And based on also the way that the person passed, you know, mm-hmm. like it's really a trauma, yeah. essentially. I mean, my father's death wasn't traumatic as such, but depending on how someone actually loses their loved one, that is just another level that adds to the individuality of their grief journey. Absolutely. And I lost my mom in quite tragic circumstances and yeah. very, very traumatic way. So, I mean, I, like you, was Googling, is it normal to feel like I want to die when you lose someone? Is it normal to feel like, you know, there's no joy left in the world? Am I ever going to be okay again? I was Googling all sorts of fucked up things, but you just don't know. And you feel like, who can I go to to ask if they haven't been through something like this? So I just spent hours and hours trying to find somebody that had been through something I had to, to feel like I wasn't going crazy. Well, I mean, Imogen, it's so full on, you know, losing someone. You lost your mom to suicide, didn't you? I did, yes. I have had a friend who has lost their partner to suicide. And I've also been a first responder at a suicide. And it is on another level. It is. Like I had to, I had to go, I immediately sought out counseling because I was like, this is going to turn into PTSD. This is full on. And I think that the thing is, is that there really isn't, I don't feel like there are very clear organizations or resources that help people. Like, you know, it might be like, oh, Beyond Blue or Lifeline or whatever, but I feel that it's a very specific type of feeling. And there's an awful lot of hopelessness that I felt, especially when I was the first responder. And I can't even begin to imagine how you have gone through this journey and continue to imagine and I have huge admiration that you're in the place you are now and I think it's amazing I think that you're the fact that you're here talking about it and doing a podcast is just so you know your mum would be so proud of you thank you Sally that's really lovely but yeah, there isn't a lot of, of help out there. And the only thing that I found really useful, and nothing helps a lot in those early days. I felt like things only help a little bit, but I did find an organization called the Alliance of Hope who do a lot of mm-hmm. work with suicide loss survivors. And that was a oh, life, wow. lifeline for me. 
yeah. they have a forum set up where yeah people are just writing their own experiences and yeah how they felt and I just it resonated with me and yeah so there there aren't a lot yeah there's not a lot but it's also that feeling of being it's uh, grief is a very isolating thing Mm. and you feel very alone I know that you know when my dad died it's weird I kind of when he died and you know I'm happy to talk quite honestly and really about the whole process because I think that people don't and I think that sometimes it kind of demystifying the whole Mm. way that things go but I remember walking out into the sunshine and just being like fuck going to the supermarket in this kind of days and it's quite busy after someone died you know like it's like there's a lot to deal with Mm. and organize and stuff like that and I remember just going you know like it's almost like you expect when there's such a monumental loss in your life to walk out and it's like the matrix and they've paused it you really really feel like it should be paused Mm. and then you're looking around you're like fuck everyone's just going on as usual you know and okay life Life just carries on. on but it's quite in those early days well actually not just in the early days but just you just kind of go shit so there's a lot of I don't know, like feeling like something that is so monumental for you doesn't really mean anything. It's so insignificant in the big scheme of things Mm. and just the world keeps turning and people keep beeping because someone's reversed into them, you know, in a car park or something. (laughs) I was ready to... The menial shit, really, you lose all patience for anything small that people are getting upset about, I definitely feel. But that was something that was quite weird for me, I remember, just thinking, wow, no one... No one really cares. <laughs> like, my dad was awesome, and no one really cares. I don't know what I was expecting, but I kind of, I don't know, I kind of was so shocked by that. I was, uh, it was really hard. And I think, as well, on top of that, I had a, a, a really similar feeling. And also, what kind of blew my mind is someone lives a life, and they live years of their life, and they're, you know, all the things they go through, and then boom gone and that's it and 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 I found that so hard to get my head around one minute you're here and the next you're not and it's like all of this life that somebody's lived and then just gone like and I still find it hard to get my head around and it's actually quite hard for me to articulate as well the thought Mm. um but I think you're right not sweating the small stuff as well you know having no patience for the small things that people moan about as well because when you've experienced a big loss it's it's all insignificant puts everything into perspective Mm. I think yeah it's funny talking about surreal like to put this in perspective my dad we moved up here what 2010 because my dad had already had heart stop and they'd put in a pacemaker so he'd almost died in 2007 and when my mom had cancer, so that was a uh, fun time. Awesome. And um, and then my husband kind of said to me, you know what, we need to move because we, my dad had been a, di- a type one diabetic, and the doctors had said to him, look, you're a product of your own success. Essentially, diabetics who are type one from your era don't usually live as long as you. But because my dad was very fit, healthy, looked after his diet, or rather, my mom did. He was really, really fit. And so the problem is, is that the side effects of 
insulin for that many years is that it starts to kind of create all these autoimmune diseases, but also starts to break down your organs. So the first thing to go was like, you know, macular dystrophy in his eyes. And then it was his heart. It was affecting his heart. And he still was pretty good when we moved up here in that, you know, the, the next thing that went was he had what was called a sclerosing of the bile duct. So his bile duct stopped working. So he would be, he would sleep quite a lot, but we still would get, you know, he was still himself. And then it was, what, 2012 on Mother's Day, my dad was a real, like, he was always involved with the grandkids and really amazing. And he was playing tennis with the grandkids up on their tennis court. And I suddenly looked up and I saw him kind of, I thought my dad was a big joker, right? So I saw him kind of like walking around, like holding on to the, holding on to the, the fencing of the tennis court. And I was like, what the fuck is that doing? Like, I thought he was just like pretend to be Spider-Man or, you know, with the kids. And I walked out and I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I can't, I can't see. Oh and gosh. I was like, what do you mean you can't see? And he said, I can't, I can't see. Where am I? And I said, you're in the tennis court. And he was like, oh, so weird. I can't see where I am. And I said, well, let me help you down. And I thought, because he's diabetic, I was like, oh, he must be having a hypo. He needs food. Mm. So we've, you know, we've gone through years of knowing, you know, like dealing with dad and having to hold him down and feed him Cadbury's chocolate fingers because he's going low and, we, you know, trying to stop him going into a coma. So we we kind of like, I was like, oh, mom, I think dad's low on sugar. He's saying that he can't see. Anyway, he kind of sat at the table and we gave him some food and then he seemed right. He seemed right. And um, we had like lunch all together. And then he said, oh, I'm just going to go and have a lie down. And I was like, there's something not right about him. And I said, you know what? I think we need to take dad to hospital. And he started kind of slurring his words and uh, really being very altered. So we took him to hospital and they were like, yeah, he's had a stroke. He's got a bleed on the brain. And so at that point, they said to us, he's not going to survive. So you need to say goodbye to him. Fucking hell, man. I tell you. How frightening, though. How old uh, were you then, Sally? Oh, look, that was only seven years. No, sorry, 2012. So eight years ago. So look, I'm a big girl. I'm 41. I'm extremely grateful. Like I know friends of mine who lost their father's you know, when they were children and, you know, like I've had this guy who's an awesome guy for a good chunk of my life, you know, and I'm very aware of that. However, it it was kind of like, oh, okay. And, you know, doctors love them, but seriously, some of them really have to pull their bedside manner together because mm. they're really shit at that stuff. You know, mm. I have really not met many doctors who are good at having the tough the tough conversations, but also the just a, a little bit aware of the magnitude of what they're saying to people. Mm. Anyway, it's sort of so become said, their norm, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, like desensitized kind of, from the situation. Yeah. So he said, um, "Oh, you need to say goodbye." And I was like, "Fuck, okay." Yeah, right, okay. And so dad, dad was not conscious, and um, we're like, "Okay, shit," and then we kind of like were sitting next to him and he came around and we were like, Oh, Hey Lazarus, like fucking medical miracle. Your head must've been all over the place. And he was like joking around and he was like, Whoa, that was a bit weird. 
and but he was paralyzed so he was paralyzed down his I think it was like his right side but in his arm it was mainly his sorry left side in his arm and the doctor said oh wow that's amazing and so he was in a rehab unit for about oh, six weeks and he started really doing well we started making plans to have him home and we were going to move to my mom to help care for him like we were creating a ramp he was learning how to walk again and then he had another one and um they were like oh no look he's not going to come back from this but he did and but then his cognitive skills had been affected this time to a point that his speech didn't come back immediately but after about a week he was back talking but he he would kind of speak and then he would just lie there with his eyes shut you know it wasn't like he was always able to talk anyway again the rehab said look we're a rehab unit we don't think he can rehabilitate anymore so you need to put him into high level care and um I, at this point, was spending about four hours a day with my mom by his bedside, four to five, well, like when the kids were at kindy and stuff. And I just wasn't prepared to kind of give up on him. So I was like, no, how are you making this criteria? Like, what's the criteria he has to hit in order for him to stay here? And they were like, oh, you're a health professional? And I said, no. But I did French and literature, a master's in that. You did a medical degree. That's it. We just chose different paths. And I'm educated, concerned daughter, and I don't want to give up on him. So let me see your criteria. So we had a meeting and they said, this is what he needs to do. So for a lot of it, my mom and I were helping him with his OT. And we really did start to see through the physio that he would do great. But because of the stroke and the and the cognitive impairment he wasn't his body and his muscles wasn't holding that information so he couldn't it wouldn't happen he's having lots of falls because when you have a stroke it's kind of like amputees they can't remember that they can't move and stuff anyway the tipping point kind of came when they were saying look he has to go into high level care and I was like no he's coming home and they said look I don't think you're really aware of the level of care he needs so I said to my mom let's fight to have him home for a weekend so we did and my mom and I were up through the night on shift over the weekend and the the hardest thing because my dad was still you know still him was having to actually say to him at the oh it's, it's, it just totally brings you back was having to say to him that he was never going to be able to come home and that was one of the hardest conversations I've had to have with my father where I'm looking at my dad and he says, so do you think I'll be able to come home? And he's saying, dad, we can't do this. Yeah, and I'm really sorry. Yeah, I'm really sorry. We really want to, but we just can't do this. And he was like, heartbreaking. Anyway, he went into high level care, had multiple strokes and, um, and for about seven, eight months. And he was amazing. He dealt with it so well. He got to a point where people had to feed him. He was on a crane. He really had no control over anything anymore. He had, he was amazing. The nurses and the doctors just said to us, your father is so inspiring. Wow. Every day we go around and we say to everybody, how are you going? You know, to check for depression and to give them um, medication. And so every day without fail, we walk in and we say to your dad, how are you going today, Ramsey? And he would say, top class. Aww. Absolutely brilliant. 
amazing. He sounds like an amazing man, Sally. Yeah, and towards the end, we could see that things, you know, he was awake less, you know. And, oh, no, this is funny, but it's not funny. It's kind of the way our family works. We're very black in our humor. Oh, but yep. I was <laughs> I was, sitting, I was sitting next to him, right? And I was saying to a friend of mine who had lost a parent, I said, you know, Dad, he's really not really there much. And I feel like um, he's really holding on for Mom. And, oh, my God. And she said to me, just whisper in his ear, you know, look, it's okay, Dad. You can go. Because often people are holding on. And I was like, okay, okay. So my mom was often next to my dad. Like she spent like 12 hours a day next to my dad. You know, she cooked all his meals. She pureed everything. She fed him. And then she would, like she was a wreck. Anyway, she went to she went to the toilet. I made some excuse or I was kind of said, oh, can you go and ask the, the nursing, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I was next to my dad and he hadn't been responsive. We'd been there for about five hours and he hadn't been responsive or said anything. And I whispered, I took his hand, and I whispered in his ear, you know, like, Dad, you know, Mom's going to be okay, and you can go if you need to go, and just go, you know, it's all going to be okay. And he opened his eyes and looked at me and went, where am I going? And I was like, oh, my God. And at that moment, at that moment, my mom looked in the door, and my dad's like, where am I going? What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I was like, nothing, nothing. We're all good. We're all good, mate. We're all good. Anyway, anyway, it was one of those things where I was down on set because I was doing film publicity at the time down on the Gold Coast, and I got a phone call, and they said, your father's had another episode. He's unresponsive. And in between this, this is a long story short, we had also had three other runs to hospital where they told us to say goodbye to him and it turned out he had pneumonia or it turned out that he was dehydrated or it turned out something and it and it was really it was like seven months of like roller coaster like it's time to say goodbye and put him into palliative care and you're like okay look how about we put him on some fluids you know and see how he goes and then he's responsive the next day and it's like fuck to have a whole year of that is you must it was about 18 months 18 and months. just yeah he had time. eventually I think it was about six strokes but the thing is the thing that I didn't know is that if you have type 1 diabetes you have a higher propensity to have stroke than anyone else and once you have one stroke it's like lightning strikes you're more likely to have more I think that because dad had the pacemaker that was a little bit of a kind of problem in that the strokes he was the pacemaker was keeping his heart going anyway I got this call when I was on set. I was down doing this film with uh, for ABC filming, and I had lots of media coming on set that whole week. We were shooting something for the ABC, and I got a phone call saying your dad's unresponsive, and we can't get in touch with your mum. And the on, I'd like because it'd been going on so long, I'd start to say to my mum, "You need to take time for yourself. You need." She was a wreck. I was like, "You need to just have a coffee, just once." like an hour and she was at that coffee and I was just like oh god so I phoned the coffee shop and said can is my mum there and they were like yeah and I said can you just tell her that dad's had an episode he's unresponsive I'm driving back from the Gold Coast I'll be there soon so I drove back got there by that point his eyes were rolled back in his head and and he you know was unresponsive and they were saying to us okay this is it We were like, oh, okay. And it's weird how nursing staff know 
like they know they've seen it so many times they can tell you at every stage it's very very weird so I kind of was like okay I, I need to prepare like I've never gone through this before but I need I've got two small children I need to organize stuff I've, I'm meant to be on set on the Gold Coast all next week I've got to try and get a replacement so I kind of did all that kind of stuff logistical stuff like I phoned work I said hey my dad's dying I need to try and find a replacement to look after all the media on set next week and to do all the shoots and stuff and they were like yep okay you know we got you and then um, said to my husband was amazing, and I just said to him, "Look, this is it." And he said, "What do you need?" And that was just so beautiful because I loved the fact that he just said, "What do you need?" And I said, "I need to not leave. I need to be here, and I need you just to fix everything else." And he was like, "Okay, done." And so, like, that, that was amazing, the... Sal. Yeah, he is a good man. That was on the Friday. And so I just sat with my mum and I went, picked up my kids from school and I, and I said, okay, my mum's dying and I'm going to be there to support Mimi. And my eldest, who was only six at the time, said, I really want to come and say goodbye to him. And I said, oh, we'll talk about it later. But I was like, I'd seen dad. He was really struggling to breathe by that point. I was like, this is not, she's too young. It's yeah. too full on. It was really, really quite full on to witness. So I was like, okay. So I went back to the hospital, the facility, and when I walked in, my dad, obviously the final stroke, had paralyzed the whole left side of his face, but he was looking right at me with and smiling in his whole, like my dad was a very twinkly man, and he was smiling, and his whole right-hand side of his face was like there, smiling at me. And I walked in, and I went, oh, my bloody God, medical miracle. And he just held my gaze, smiling. And then he went back to the way he was. And I said to mom, what the hell was that? And mom said, I was just talking to him, whispering in his ear about the first time we met when we were 14. And I was oh, like, that's so oh, my God. <sighs> anyway, it was just so beautiful. And that moment, because I went, hey, dad. And I, it was almost like he really just totally used every inch of his effort to connect with me the way he always had. And then we sat there and um, my brother came and we actually were playing Singing in the Rain. We had Singing in the Rain playing, you know, in the room, which my mom and I said to each other, your dad hates musicals. Like he would, you know, but we had Singing in the Rain because it was one of our favorite films. So it was something that was helping us. And we kind of apologized to dad while we were sitting there going, I'm sorry, Ramsey, we'll play some Dean Martin in a minute, but far out, you know, this is full on. <laughs> and we just sat there uh, with him and you just see the different stages. Like you see, like they've gone into the next stage. We also were quite shocked at how many people who worked in the facility were coming to say goodbye to him. And I was like, oh my God. And people were coming in saying, oh, it's been our privilege to work, to, to look after your father. And I'm the night girl. And I always look after him. And he always speaks Korean to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, because my dad spoke lots of different languages. Wow. We were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And she was like, yeah. And then another girl came in. And she said, oh, your dad was speaking Arabic to me. And we were singing. <laughs> wow. You know, we're singing Arabic. <laughs> he was a very clever linguist. And we were like, 
oh, you know, like he, he was like singing. And so we got, they say that when people are dying, the last part of the brain to go is the part that remembers music. So we had, we had already got like a musical therapist who played the guitar, who would get to come into my dad like twice a week and he would just play guitar for my dad. And it was kind of like that documentary Alive inside where like, you know, my dad would come to life listening to all these old Scottish traditional songs from his youth. And it was really a, a very special time. So we got this guy in and he played music, you know, from my dad's youth. And we just sat there and we were all there when he took his last breath. And I actually, we were just telling him, you know, like at one thirty in the morning and we'd been there all day waiting. And then you just know, I don't know if you went through that, Sally, if you were able to be there, but you just know, like, it's just like, oh, this is happening now. My brother was making a coffee and I ran through and I said, this is happening now, mate. And he was like, really? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was really, I felt very privileged to be able to be there next to him as he took his last breath. I mean, to be able to just say, you know, we love you, Dad. You know, we're all here and we just love you so much. And I have been there. I've had two natural births with my children. And I've seen birth come into the world. And I've now seen people leave. And I actually, it sounds sounds weird to say it, but. It was really, I do feel like I, it kind of just took away a lot of the fear for me about death. I kind of just went, oh, that felt very natural. It felt very, it didn't feel scary. It didn't feel anything other than I now get it. And as soon as my dad took his, his last breath, I looked at my mom and she looked back at me and we both said, I get it now. That whole thing about spirit. Because as soon as that last breath of his had gone, the person in front of me was no longer my dad. Like, it was really weird. And so it wasn't hard to sit with him until the undertakers came because it wasn't my dad anymore. Like, it really, everything that he brought, it was just his body there. And it it, it didn't even look like him, like the way that his spirit animated his body. It was it was very surreal, but it was also quite, it was also quite calming and reassuring to kind of go, ah, okay, that's, that's what it is. Okay, I get it now. But even, even sitting there and being with him, and then being there, I sat there while the, the undertakers got him organized to take him away. And we had to sit there for like four hours waiting for them. I chose to sit there with them because I kind of was like, I want, I want to try and make this as real as possible. I want to actually know what's happening and to be there. But even with all of that, the next day I was, and actually it happened probably about, oh, more than a handful of times in the six months following his death, I actually this next day, I drove along that road because I was going up to my mum's house and I turned in and I parked to go in and see him, as I always would. And I just was in the car and I got out of the car and I just went, oh, shit. Oh, no, he's not here now. Oh, okay. And kind of got back in the car and went, oh, okay. And even 
like months later, when I wasn't turning in anymore, and I was driving up to my mum's house to see my mum, I would get this huge feeling of guilt, like, I'm a shit daughter. I haven't been to see dad today. I'm such a shit daughter. And I would have to catch myself and go, far out. Like, this is so surreal. And that's even with all of the fact that I saw his deterioration. I was there. I saw him pass. Even with all of that, that is how I explain to people how surreal it is and how much of a void death is. And how it's something that we really don't understand and find it difficult to grasp in that it can really just play such massive tricks on your brain. Absolutely. I found that when my mum died, um, I'd always get in the car and my first thing would do is I'd just ring my mum. And so I was having to kind of retrain my brain to know that I couldn't do that anymore. It was bizarre, but I kept catching myself going to, you know, dial her number and I'm like, I can't, I can't anymore, I can't. And it's just having to, yeah, get used to the fact that they're not there anymore. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's really bizarre. It's weird because the other thing as well is I only took one photo, I think, of my dad during that whole period uh, because I found that actual period really painful mm. because dad, you know, had declined I found it, I took one photo of me holding his hand, but I really didn't take any, I think there's one photo of him and my mum after the first lot when we had him in a wheelchair and we were able to, you know, in the early days of him being in the the high level care, we were able to take him out for, for a day here and there. And there's photos of him coming to my daughter's kindy to read, to be there for like grandparent day or something. But, you know, I say to people, just record it. Like, really? One day you will wish. I, I, like, I don't have any, any footage really of my dad's voice, you know, like nothing. I, he didn't really have a mobile phone. So, you know, I've heard of people who keep their parents' mobile phone so they can just hear the, the voicemail. Like now I keep every single voicemail my mom sends me, like oh, no matter how cool. trivial. Yeah, like you don't think about capturing those moments, no, do you? And and no. it's so important. And yeah, even even now with like my husband and you know, I just make sure that I'm capturing like video moments yeah. because yeah, everybody in my family mm. is kind of sick of me, you know, a little bit. But um, <laughs> constantly I totally, recording. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like documentary, but um, <laughs> no, I guess I I'm very aware of it. Just capturing those. Sometimes I just put the video on, not when they know, like, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not sharing it or anything, but just for myself, like Mm -hmm. capturing my mom and the way that she interacts with my daughters Mm -hmm. because they have such a beautiful relationship. And I'm so lucky. The one thing I have of my dad, really, I've got two quick videos that I managed to find. You know how you, you change phones and things were saved on a sim and not your phone and I was really all over the place but I, I managed to capture two videos one is of my dad teaching my eldest daughter how to play tennis and that's so cute and then the other one is him teaching her how to dive into the pool and that was you know towards that was probably about three months before he had his, his first stroke and they're really precious to me because it just captures 
the dynamism and energy and vivacity of him. He was a real joker. I think there was a, a video that my brother had taken and my dad, my dad used to, he used to have this tradition. Uh, it's his birthday on Christmas Eve. So on Christmas Eve, we would try and celebrate like his birthday and do some fun stuff. And my dad would do these treasure hunts, but they were so fucking cryptic and full on <laughs> that his clues were like, um, uh, so like, and he do these maps, and we're like, "Is that like a bird's eye view looking down at this?" <laughs> so it was always really, really like it was funny because we just—he was such a smart person. He'd do such really crazy stuff <laughs> that we would be like, "Um," and he'd go, "No," but you see, like, and he would talk you through it. So we've got a little bit of a clip of him talking through one of his clues, you know, and mm-hmm. it. it made me remember just that that little that little idiosyncrasy of his and his little quirks of the things that he did which uh, I think are so precious and at first it's it's quite hard you know I couldn't watch stuff like that at first but um as time goes on it's actually really lovely like now I love looking at photos of my dad I just go oh he was such a great guy and he was so fun and I really talk about him with my children in your book, Sally, you talk about him being an unlikely star icon and how he's really influenced <laughs> you. And there's a part in your book where you talk about how when you were 14, you were dressed in a short black rah-rah skirt, 12 hold yep. up Martins over the knee striped socks and an army bomber jacket and a safety pin covered beret. And yep. he would ask you to do a runway before you left the house and say, oh my God, you look fantastic. And I just <laughs> yeah. loved that. Yeah. I thought that was Amazing. just awesome. And he sounds that like was such the way a he character. Was. Yeah, he was, he was hilarious. I mean, like so many of his photos, my mother, unless my mother styled him, my mother is extremely stylish, like very elegant, but also just, effortlessly stylish and has her own look (laughs) and we used to joke that my dad had his own personal stylist because left his own devices seriously it was a fucking lottery what he would turn up in (laughs) and he was also a little bit colorblind (laughs) so sometimes he would be fashion forward in his choice of like I remember I remember wearing this pink shirt with like a red v-neck kind of puma uh, marina wool v-neck and this kind of like striped tie and my mom just taking one look at him he was meant to be going out to some you know fancy dinner and my mom just looking taking one look at him just like no 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 sorry Ramsey you need to just go back and change I'm actually laid it out on your bed if you can just do that <laughs> because he would just like pick random shit and put it together but I I definitely have inherited that from him um, and he was so encouraging and I think the research that I've done into confidence into self-esteem self-worth for girls especially is that the way they're spoken to as a teen when they're experimenting is so crucial to how they can be bold and be confident in expressing themselves through clothes so my husband sometimes my eldest daughter is really into cosplay She's only, she's just turned 13. She's all, it's funny. She's always been that kid though. Like she would walk out with me dressed in like an adult gray haired wig that was kind of trailing on the ground. Amazing. And this kind of like, <laughs> then she would kind of put together some other part of a costume and say, you know, I'm a wolf 
wizard and I'd be like okay cool and she would just walk around and we'd go and do the normal stuff with her and I now she's 13 and she'll she'll say I'll say can you go and walk the dog and she's like yep and then my youngest will come through and go mom and I'm like what and she's like oh. and I'm like you need to just let her be her and you be you like and my eldest daughter will be dressed in some Japanese you know manga wig with fake teeth and full makeup I mean do you just like have these cosplay. things lying around your house Sally <laughs> she you know what she actually uses her pocket money to buy mm. costumes and she puts them on her birthday list and, oh, and I just, just brilliant my husband at first you know was like really like we're going for a walk up the mountain with the dog and she's dressed with a purple kind of I guess like a it's this Japanese kind of it looks actually like um Raven from Teen Titans wig like a purple wig and she's got full makeup and she's wearing this cape but I'm like it's fine like just you know and so he has learned to just go you look fantastic. I love that. Like, that looks amazing. And just allowing her to be her, which is something that I I told him, look, that's something my dad was like, you know, that's really good for her to just experiment and feel supported in that, um, her individuality. Sally, what was it like for you having two young children and trying to grieve? Because I've got a one-year-old daughter and I mean, I'm trying to juggle it. It's really hard, but I can't imagine it's having hard. two kids. Well, when dad died, my eldest was only seven. Yeah, she was just seven. And my youngest was uh, three and a half. And I remember clearly, my husband was amazing. I mean, it was really full on for him over the period of, you know, like the two years of dad being sick. And he's an incredible person. But I remember it was probably about six weeks after dad died I burst into tears like I just was sobbing and making you know Vegemite toast in the morning and I've never hidden it from my children I think uh, I just uh, I never wanted them to think that mommy was sad for no reason you know and to be scared and so I've always been very open about why I'm sad or why I'm upset even with other things I just say to them you know I'm really upset because this has happened and I'm feeling a little bit blue because my hormones are a little bit out of whack or, you know, I always explain to them what's going on with mommy and why mommy is <laughs> sobbing in a corner. But I, um, I said, I, I kind of was sobbing and my husband said, what's wrong with you? In that voice. And I really was just so it just comes over you, you know, like waves. And I'm not a very good swimmer in Australian waves. And so sometimes it kind of like tumbles you around a bit, grief. And my uh, my eldest, who was only six, seven at the time, just said, do you think maybe mama's still really, really upset about Baba I'm dying? And I just looked at him and I just went, you really need a seven-year-old to tell you that? And just he just so went. so intuitive, aren't they? They're just, yeah. yeah and I said, have we? I said, have we used up all your empathy like over the last two years? Is that it? Is that all you've got? And he was just like, nah, sorry, I was being shit. Sorry, I just didn't think about it. And, you know, like that's someone who is extremely considerate, extremely caring, so gorgeous, yet it's not happening to him. And so it's quite easy for people to just switch off and not realize why you're crying. And it's out the blue. And with dad dying, the way I explained it to my children, because I'm not 
religious. I was brought up Scottish Presbyterian and I, I love the Bible. I think it's awesome. I love lots of stories. I love the Abraham and the rainbow colored coat and, you know, Lot's wife and all those Bible stories. Love them. Love all the morals. Love all that. But I don't adhere to, it's not how I live my life. I feel like I just happen to believe in one way because I was born in Glasgow in Scotland. And so I've brought my kids up to believe that really God is inside of you and God is really the best version of yourself. And that everybody has their own sense of what God is and we respect that whether it's Buddha whatever it is whether it is you know mother nature whatever it is that people believe in that allows them to be kind compassionate and tolerant I'm, I don't I don't care what it is peace joy freedom love you know that's all I care about and so when dad died I I was like I'm not doing the heaven thing so I just said look when Babam died, I said his spirit, I just said his body just didn't work anymore. I said, but everything that he was, all everything that he felt about you guys, all the love that he ever had and showed for all of us just came out like a beautiful firework when he died and just went into the world around us nature everything we see around us and all of us it went into us at the same time like a beautiful firework and it all just like glowing all those gorgeous beautiful kind of like fireflies just landed inside of us and now so he and everything he was is part of all of us it's never making me cry (laughs) i'm literally like tears coming out of my eyes now that's so beautiful and i'll be stealing that one for sure (laughs) yeah and it really helped him and i said so when you look at this my dad's favorite color was orange and i said so every time we see a beautiful orange sunset that is baba i'm putting it on for us like that's it when we look at the floors around us Every, that miracle that we see all around us, the kookaburras, the beautiful wildlife we have all around us every day, every single part of that is also like Baba. That's, he lives in all of that around us. He will never, ever leave anything. And he's always here. Like he's part of you. So you can always reach down and find that in yourself, like how much he loved you. And they really responded to that. And so now, even now, they will say, oh, look at that beautiful Babam sunset, you know, and they're like 13 and 10, you know, or whenever we see a kookaburra, because my dad was renowned for his laugh, we always say that that's my dad coming to say hello. And, um, you know, I mean, I just feel that I was very, I'm very privileged to have had someone who was so lovely you know we worked hard at our relationship we had our there were points in our relationship over the years where it could have gone either way really but we communicated um how we both were feeling and my dad made a massive effort to you know make sure that we had a strong and connect a strong um, connection and I was really happy that I could come and spend time with him in the last years of his life you know, he was a very special person. And so with my children, I try and we, we keep the, the kind of dream alive of Babam. Christmas Eve, our family, we all raise a glass to him on his birthday. 
and we do a treasure hunt. My husband's actually taken that over, and oh, um, he does the treasure hunt, and it's really fun. And you know, Not we always cryptic. talk about <laughs> it's 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 still like Jason is pretty into his cryptic stuff, but we did say, can you kind of like make it easier? So he has, <laughs> he's heard, he's listened, and you know, it's really lovely. The kids. You know, they, like every now and then, my littlest one will, you know, the kids sometimes just burst into tears. And I go, what is it? And they go, oh, I just was thinking and missing Baba. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's beautiful. It's really hard. So we just allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, we talk about it. One of the things that my mom said early on that she found so hard was no one ever said his name anymore. She like his name was Ramsey, and she never heard that name anymore. And and for the first time, I really understood why people name children and grandchildren after the eldest, you know, the the yeah. father in the family. Because I was like, oh, I could see how that would be really comforting if we had like if one of my nephews was called Ramsey, and we were still using that name. Like, and so I said to my mom, well, you know what, I'm going to start talking about dad as Ramsey when I'm around you how about we do that and she was like yeah I'd love that and uh, and so and then my eldest I told my eldest and she said well when I'm old enough to change my name I'm going to put Ramsey into my name and I said I think that's a lovely idea so So I think that you know it's it's those kind of things where I never hid what I was feeling I found I think I I do think as well with children the conversation around death doesn't happen enough. And I think it's only recently mm. they've started to incorporate into um, children's cartoons where a grandparent would die in an episode. And I think that's so important for kids to yeah. understand death. Well, I think that my daughter, um, my youngest, she had someone in her class. His his father died, I think it was father. And the teacher called me and said to me, hey, I just want to say that you know, your daughter just handled something so beautifully. It was Father's Day that they, all the kids were doing, you know, letters to their father. And this kid's father had only, you know, like died, not even six months before that, in quite tragic circumstances. And um, Elodie apparently had gone up to the teacher and said, I don't think that we should do this because this is going to make him feel really bad. Can we change the way that we do this? Can it just be that we're making a card for someone that we love on this day? Because I don't, I don't, I don't think this is good for him. And the teacher was like, oh, you're right. It isn't a great thing to be doing. And it's, it, it isn't something that is helpful because it was so fresh for this kid. And I don't even think it was six months. And I just thought, I guess the more you talk to kids about death and you make it normal that it's, it, they, they start, they're so innately empathetic that they themselves can see things and go, wait a minute, let's not do that. That's not going to make this person feel good. I mean, I feel like all of those things are problematic, whether you've had a loss in the family or not. I feel like families are so blended and unique nowadays that we need to change the way that we talk about holidays and whatever because I just feel that it makes lots of little children feel other and not part uh, it's not an inclusive vibe at all but I think that kids I think the hardest thing going back to your question Imogen about dealing with kids I was definitely not my best self 
I was ratty. I felt terrible. I was definitely, my patience was really not great. And I did explode and shout. Uh, and I don't, shouting is not really something that I do, but I definitely was not my best self. But what I would do is I would immediately apologize to them and say that was completely, I'm really sorry, but mummy is really, really trying to deal with losing Baba and it makes me a wee bit less patient and I'm feeling lots of different emotions all at one time and I'm really sorry that I'm taking it out on you and that's not okay but I'll you know I'll try and be better and kids are amazingly forgiving you know yeah um, I, it's a tricky it's, one to navigate isn't it my oh, daughter she's so not hot. talking yet so it's like I can't like I do try to explain to her like if I have one of those ugly cry days I'm like I'm crying because I miss my mummy but she can't talk back to me but I'm just hoping yeah. that she can kind of understand I, I just, yeah and I think that if you just speak and also I used to do like that was probably around the time that I discovered the work of Virginia Satir who is a family therapist um I think she's passed now but she's a mate she was amazing and I read her work because I was wanting to be better. I was wanting to, you know, I was drinking a lot as well. Like I was, uh, like I'm not, a, a, contrary to the fact that I was Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> and the stereotype, I am not a big drinker. Like a couple of something and I'm happy. I can stay on the dance floor and dance and, you know, like that's it. I'm a lightweight. But I was drinking every single night, one, maybe two sometimes even three glasses of wine because I just hated going to sleep. I couldn't sleep. I I saw stuff. I really struggled and I was trying not to sleep and I found that I would just, I was, I mean, it's, you know, it's bloody textbook. I was just completely numbing pain. So probably I was a bit hungover as well in the morning. Therefore, yeah. I wasn't that nice to my children. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. kind of like, oh, there you go cause and effect how long do you um, think you were in the thick of it sally so how long you know did you did the load you know what a bit for you well i i thought i was doing great <laughs> and i would really i lent heavily and i say this in the book i lent very heavily on my personal style because i found it really hard even before dad died i found it really hard to talk to people because i was really just trying to get you know, pay the bills, get stuff done and get through stuff. And so I would wear big sunglasses, really, really amazing sunglasses. I'd have bold lipstick. I would wear, you know, I'd really focus on my bold personal style to say stuff so that I didn't have to. So the conversation could be, oh, my God, I love your glasses. Oh, thanks so much. You know, I could kind of keep people at a distance. But what I used to do was my routine was I would drop the kids at school and then I would get in the car and I would have a good cry behind my fabulous sunglasses and then I would get on with my day and I, I wouldn't deal with it and then I wouldn't actually deal with it at all and I wasn't sleeping I was barely eating like I was really I when I'm stressed I just have no appetite I just mm. was just you know, I'd get to five o'clock and suddenly realize I hadn't eaten all day. And then I was just like popping some jelly beans or, you know, a strawberry tart or something, like really not looking after myself. And probably I thought I was doing really well. But then it was probably about, 
Oh God. So it would have been in the, within the first year. I actually was passing out. Wow. And um, I, I woke up in Target in um, the, like on a bed. Like I kind of was like, I woke up and I was on a, on, in that kind of section, you know, where they make up beds and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. Okay. And then another time I'd kind of wake up and I was in my car at the side of the road, you know, and this, the engine was switched off. But I'd be like, hmm, that's How weird. scary. Mm. Yeah. And so I actually, I actually went to a neurologist I went to emergency because people thought uh, I was like I had a I was having an embolism or I don't know anyway so I went and got checked out I had every test possible they're injecting this that whatever into me to check and see what my brain was doing and they sent me to a neurologist and he said to me tell me what's going on so I was chatting to him and he said so your dad died how long ago and I was like oh about seven eight months ago and he was like how are you going with that? And I was like, mm, not great. And I said, oh, you know, it's okay. I'm not really sleeping. And he said, how much sleep do you reckon you get a night? And I said, oh, probably uninterrupted. I don't know, like an hour, an hour and a half maximum at a time. And he was like, you're severely sleep deprived because that's why you're passing out. And he was like, that's your brain just going, fucking, I can't cope. And he said, you need you need to actually deal with this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, because you're not dealing with your grief, your brain is waking you up in the middle of the night because it needs to defrag. Imagine it's a computer and you need to defrag it. And it's not having any time to process it. You're pushing it to the side the whole time. So he gave me some really great advice. And he said, you need to start setting a timer. And you need to sit with it like, um, and work yourself up to an hour where you do not distract yourself and you allow yourself to feel everything you want, you have to feel. And I was like, oh, that just, that's, that's horrible. Great advice. And it's so important to do mm. that because I think we are so busy now. We just push it aside and oh, don't sit with what we're feeling. You've got and to I consciously do it. We've, we've spoken about that, haven't we, Ian? Yeah. That we both find that like we can't sleep easily anymore and it and we get upset when it's time to go to bed because we've just been so busy throughout the day that we haven't given ourselves any time to yeah. really process yeah. our grief. And I have then... to listen to white noise as well. I can't mm. be, yep. you know, have a quiet mind. Yeah, I, can't, I have to listen to like podcasts or music or something because yeah. if I'm just, yeah. just left alone and with my thoughts, then it's just, yeah, it's just ruminating. Fucked up. And Sal, um, you talk about in your book how th- that period of time, so around the time that your dad passed away and then afterwards was quite pivotal for you in terms of almost like a transformation of your life and and and, and has led you to your career path and where you are yeah. now well you know like I always my father was you know as we were saying was huge cheerleader in everything so enthusiastic like amazing would phone me up and go tell me what you're doing today you know, like what's happening? He would drop in when he was still allowed to drive. He would drop in on his way back, you know, from a doctor's appointment or acupuncture and say, what's happening? Like, tell me. And he was so excited in everything I was ever doing. Every harebrained idea, he goes, that's a great idea. You should do that. And I noticed that when he died, I really missed that. Like, I was like, oh, shit. And I'm not saying that my other friends and family aren't supportive yeah they are but they definitely like they weren't him 
And they weren't his energy, that contagious enthusiasm. And they weren't his kind of, they just weren't him. And so I really noticed that I missed it. And I became really insecure. And I've read stuff about this. And it says that when the pillars of your, like your mom or your dad die, it's actually really normal to feel really insecure because essentially it's like one of those pillars is pulled away. Mm -hmm. So I've never been someone that's been insecure in my abilities, in my friendships and anything, but I really was overanalyzing lots of things. I had like a couple of instances with friends where I kind of really, not lost it, but I really got upset with friends because I was like, you know, you're minimizing my grieving process. I I don't like it, you know, because they'd say to me, how are you going? And I'd go, yeah, I'm good. And I'd go on to talk about something else. And they'd go, how are you really going though? Like, it feels like you've got a mask up. And I just was like, no, this is how I'm dealing with it. And then it made me feel bad that I wasn't doing it properly. And that, you know, like it's weird, the things that your brain, and then I felt really bad that I wasn't honoring him because I should be sad all the time or I should be able to discuss and talk about it whenever anyone else wants to discuss it. But sometimes I just didn't want to be that girl that is grieving, you know, like we're at a party or we're at a dinner party. Sometimes it was nice just to be me again, Mm -hmm. you know, and not the person that's gone through that and, and be kind of pin, like, you know, I guess pigeonholed by that trauma and that grief and you get the sympathy looks from people as well don't you uh, it's like that needs to end at some point it's like stop feeling sorry for me yes but it's also like you know like I did have quite tough conversations with a couple of people and bless their cottons the ones that are the the golden ones totally took it and were like you know what I'm really really sorry and yeah I was and I'm just you know, I just don't know. I, I know I'm going to have to face death at some point And I just really want to know how you're okay. You know, like, how are you coping? How are you just doing this? I just don't know how it's done. And I was being selfish and, and really, you know, I'm really sorry. But to get back to the point about, you know, how it changed things, I really realized that, fuck, I've got to be my own cheerleader. I don't love myself as much as I put love into everyone else. I really noticed that. I was like, I talk about self-love, but really I'm not feeding myself what I'm feeding my children and my husband you know I'm I I make them breakfast I make you know to be nice or I make them their lunch and it's all beautiful and nourishing but I'm I'm just I'm just kind of like like last in the queue like I'm not giving myself anything and I had a horrible bout of pneumonia and I just went okay line in the sand it was about 15-16 months after dad died land in the sand that's it I can relate to you so much on that one, Sally. So my mum was that person for me. She was my biggest cheerleader. And then when I lost her, I felt like I lost a huge part of myself as well. And I felt Mm -hmm. like nobody really loved me the way that my mum loved me and made Mm -hmm. me feel. Absolutely. And I just felt like I lost so much confidence. And even doing this podcast, it's something that I wanted to call my mum and tell my mum about because I know that she'd be super proud. And it's like having to find that within myself and be like, you know what, you're doing this for your mum. And it's something that she would love and be proud. But it's kind of like, yeah, getting to move forward without having to have that I guess validation in a way from my mom that I'm doing a good job or it's the right thing to do but it is it's a really hard lesson well the thing is and Imogen I mean I can just hear it in your voice the thing is is that I have learned is that I just 
say it. <laughs> Usually not when someone's around. Even though, but mind you, now everyone's got bloody earpods in. They probably think I'm on the phone. But I kind of just say, hey, Dad, like when the podcast launched, I was like, hey, Dad, are you noticing this? Like, you see it? You know? Yeah. I've done it. You tuning in. you subscribed, you know? Mom, wherever you are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give us and a I review. And I think that, you know, I think that um, I just, I just kind of declare it to him, you know, like I just go, hey, you know, like I, and I, I actually did it the other day. I just said out loud, I was meditating and I said, out loud, oh, I just wish you were here, dad. And then this kookaburra just landed on the fence and just started oh, wow. laughing. And I just, and it looked right at me and I just went, oh, and you know, whatever that is. I mean, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how the universe works. It might just be the fact that that kookaburra landed. But it comforted me in that moment and made me go, oh, that's nice. Okay. Be open to the, to the sign. Yeah, yeah. I just, I feel like, um, I feel like it's just a little bit harder. It's just a little bit harder. And so I definitely went, okay, line in the sand. I'm going to look after myself and love myself the way my dad loved. And I absolutely look after myself now. I started meditating at that time. I was always one of these people who I was like, oh, meditation for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are your fucking little, where are your fucking bells and chanting as we speak? <laughs> um, but I, um, I started meditating and I find it really hard, but I do it every day and I now do like about 20 minutes and sometimes it's, you know, at, at the school gate waiting at pickup I just have my sunglasses on and I put on the app and I meditate um, or I listen to a meditation that I've saved on Spotify and I just do it every day um, and it sets me up I always uh, there's so many things in my life now that are non-negotiable I nourish even if I'm really busy I just chuck every green vegetable that is in our fridge into like a container and I have like containers set up with every nut, every hemp seed, every chia, every everything, everything, everything. <laughs> and I just in. have, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I even if all I eat is like a bowl of greens with hemp seeds and walnuts and nuts and whatever, and I chuck a, a tin of kind of you know chili tuna on top of it, and I just sit and eat that. I just make sure that I always find the time to feed myself well. And look after myself, um, and even now, like it's, I take time. I say I don't ask for time. I take time. So I just say, "Hey, guys, I'm just gonna go and do some yoga right now for the next half an hour, or I'm just gonna go and do some uh, exercise, some press ups and stuff for half an hour." You know, dinner's on its way, or my husband, who's an amazing cook, will say, I'll do dinner. On you go, 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 go. So I used to ask permission, like, hey, you know, I used to wait for someone to tell me to go and do that. Now I don't. And I also um, just was like, you know what? I just have to really uh, focus on getting my mindset right and really digging deep and going, okay, where where does the inner bitch kind of that I talk about in the book, where does she, she doesn't live in style for me, but where is she living? Where is she hiding out in me? And I found that it was definitely in terms of achievement, productivity, um, feeling like I was not, I was useless unless I was achieving something. So I've fixed that fucking shit. That's gone. And, <laughs> um, you know, but like really kind of sitting 
And it sounds so new age, doesn't it? And even the word new age sounds a bit weird and passy. But like, I really sit with myself and go, I don't try and distract myself. I really kind of go, okay, what am I feeling in my body? Ah, okay. And I notice how if something doesn't feel right for me, I immediately feel it in my gut. I definitely, that's a real place for me. I went at, I had some real kind of um, trauma that popped up as well, which was weird after dad died. It was probably like oh, 15, 15 months. No, probably about two years after dad died. This trauma uh, of sex abuse that happened when I was in my teens, that was, I'd fucking just put it in a box for like 30 odd years. I do think that losing losing someone, it does bring up unresolved traumas. It's something I've yeah. been working through as well. And it's like, oh, what's that? Oh, why am I even thinking about that? It just, yeah, everything bubbles up to the surface that you haven't dealt with. And I, you know what else I thought it might be? I thought, ah, oh, I get it now. It's like, A, I didn't need to protect him from that because that was something that I'd held secret, you know? Mm-hmm. And B, I have to be the adult. I have to be the parent, you know? Like, I have to grow up and be an adult and I was really mindful I said to my husband I want to go to counseling because I want to be whole for my children I want my children to have a whole person so I went to counseling for about three months to deal with that and you know like you know that was huge but I think that grief does bring out these things and and I think that if you're not really aware of the weird twists and turns that grief takes you can kind of you can kind of think that you're losing your mind a little bit and I did have those moments too and I've never felt like that but I did feel and I'm I'm lucky I have a partner I could communicate with and say I think I'm losing my mind like you know I would see stuff I would feel all these like really overwhelming emotions sometimes really dark ones and just having someone that would say it's all going to be okay like this is this is, this is just part of the process right? is normal everything you think yeah is normal. it's all part like, of the you process know, it's shitty and um, but it's all it's it's all going to pass and the thing is I love that I have been able to pass that on to people so I've sat with someone when her mum was dying and I've been able to be that person and just go and I've been able to you know check in with her and for her to actually talk about how she's actually feeling Mm. and you know there's a funeral and then people stop checking in you know Mm. and just not being aware of all the different you know in the first year the first year is weird because there's so many kind of weird little rituals and anniversaries and 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 even the ones that you don't want to remember you Mm. you're like it's like this weird internal kind of google calendars or something that pings it up and you're like oh you know this is the day that he had his stroke yeah i mean like and you're like i don't want to fucking remember that Mm. so true Um, and we we talk we we talk about this uh, we've spoken about um people who yeah they they mean well but people who haven't experienced um loss just they go on with their lives and um, they do like trickle out you, the, the the contacts and people checking in after those couple of first couple of months it kind of phases well, out yeah it's strange isn't it and I actually I actually just say to people 
I just don't think people know. It brings out the best and the worst in people for sure. But I, I also think that people just don't know how to handle it. And I, you know, I'm just really honest. I will check in and just say, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you this morning and I don't have any fucking wisdom. And people, that's the other thing. People start, because they don't, because they don't know and we haven't been trained and we have no culture of death and what that means, people say stuff like, I can't tell you how many times people said to me, oh, well, you know, it's for the best. He's out of his misery. And I just was like, inside, I just was like, fuck off. Yeah. You have no fucking idea. Like, even if... They're in a better someone, place now. It's like, no, oh, they should God. be here. But it's also just so... It just reduces everything, you know? Like, and it's like... Yeah. Don't say that. Like, stop trying to fucking fix it. Don't. But also when they say something, like, even, you know, I used to explain to someone, even though my dad was so ill, no matter how debilitating his illnesses were, no matter how much he was reduced, like, by you saying that, like, it really it kind of minimizes how much of a void it is in my life. Like, mm. you know, just don't say it. Just don't say it. Yeah, all those. Note just to the trite. supporters out there: don't fucking say it. <laughs> right, like what's the one? Oh, you know, like oh, it's, uh, he's in a better place. Um, you know, it's God's will. Uh, the other one is yes, you know, like um, it's, uh, he's now out of his suffering. Like what I always say to people: look, just say, look, there are absolutely no words that I can say to you that are going to sum up how you might be feeling. But all I know is I've gone through loss of a loved one and it's shit, but I promise you that it will, it will become better. And uh, life is not going to be the same again because it isn't. That's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but it will still be wonderful and beautiful and joyful. And uh, you will start to see that kind of, I think children really force that to come back into your life because they're so in the moment. And so in, a, in one way, I definitely found that my children really allowed me to be Feel in joy. the present. Yeah. Yeah. Let the joy creep and back so in. And so I would say for someone, if they are going through grief, is get around kids. Get around your friends who've got kids. Get around your grandkids. Get around. Get back in amongst it, you know, because they definitely bring it back to the moment, and um, that you know they'll just break out dancing, you know, in the middle of the queue at at Coles, and you're like, oh, God, this is hilarious. <laughs> You've got no idea how hard life is yet. <laughs> yeah, and isn't thinking. that beautiful? Yeah. Like, I think that you know, I just uh, like to kind of um, go with them on that journey, you know? I just, I do remember that, you know, when you've got kids and, and you know, if you're dealing with grief as well and it, you've got your working and you've got lots of things, I kind of call it life Jenga. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, you have to kind of pull something out of the tower, whether it's your health or whether it's lunches or whether it's whatever, but you're kind of, it's not juggling and it's definitely not spinning plates. It's just this life Jenga constantly. Yeah. And I, I always uh, 
sounds of I was constantly rushing my kids. You know, like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. It was like for Private Benjamin or something. Was, you know, <laughs> one of these movies. And grief really forces you uh, to, and trauma in terrible stuff really does highlight the beauty of moments and really underlines the beauty of the present. And so I made a conscious effort through my meditation and really trying to kind of come back to that was to, um, to go with them in that moment. You know, when we're walking and a butterfly goes past, I would stop and force that inner voice going, hurry up, we're going to be late for kindy, you know, to just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for me. Yeah, and it is a conscious choice you have to keep making, isn't it? Yeah. And I guess now, you know, what I love through the book, but then also through the mindset mentoring I do with clients and and with, um, you know, strategic life and business strategy, I really love the fact that I get to help people create a life of joy that's heart-led, that is focusing on making the most of the moment uh, and allows them to really find their kind of reach and find their inner cheerleader, really kind of give her really hard-ass, amazing, bold, beautiful pom-poms and see how if they start to focus on bringing all the things in that give them joy, whether it's whatever it is in their business or their work or what they love doing or how they like working or or the things they like doing in their day, bringing all of that together and showing them how we can do that, help them to kind of give ditch the inner bitch, as I say, and um, and really kind of understand and get rid of the labels and the stories and the self-limiting beliefs and all of the shit that has held them back to this point and really come into themselves, you know, really that's, you know, really that's my dad's gift to, to me and to others is that he saw everything as an opportunity, everything, life is an adventure. I, I just remember as a kid, you know, we'd run out of petrol. My dad would just flip the car into neutral and go, okay, let's see if we can make it to the next petrol station. What do we reckon? What's the bet? Do you reckon? You know, like, he never, ever saw anything as a problem. Nothing. He never did. Mm. He would just deal with it uh, when he'd lose his job. He would just, you know, get a job as a chauffeur and drive and, you know, make the most of that and be the best at that. And yeah. he really was someone who that idea of you know just create a bag of tricks you know Mm. so you don't know where life's going to take you you want to have a bag of tricks where you're always learning always evolving and you can pull something out that can help you in that situation whether it's to get money or whether it is to get to the next point in your life or whatever you know I love being able to do that with people now and that is that's really what dad's death really gifted me was like really realizing that I held all of that in me and and it, and I didn't really need him I don't mean that in a, in a bad way but that he had he had totally kind of passed the baton on to me and I was like oh 
he's totally given me that optimism and that enthusiasm and that joy and that love of connecting with people and courage and you know bringing people together and um helping them carrying his legacy forward yeah and just like like lighting a wee spark in someone else that was my dad he was he he could see potential everywhere and he could see potential in other people and and i guess that's what i love is that i get to live that out now that was his legacy which is kind of pretty bloody awesome it's absolutely um, awesome and that's yeah. such a you're doing a bloody good job of it sally that's for are. sure <laughs> sally thank you so much for joining us today you are an absolute inspiration so inspiring Aww. and oh thanks it's I think... so inspiring that you girls have done such a beautiful job with this podcast and i can't wait to listen to upcoming episodes and i really think it's so impactful and yeah your mums were just smiling like the sun is shining because their joy in what you're doing here and how it's going to help so many people thank you so much thank you sally thank you for having me it's been an absolute privilege i really appreciate you letting me share this story i've learned so much from from (laughs) even chatting to you so i yeah i can imagine there's going to be a lot of listeners that it will take away a lot from from hearing your story thank you thank you so much Wow. Incredible. I think my mind's blown a bit. Sally is absolutely brilliant and how inspiring. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you have enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to and also give us a like or a review because everything helps. And if you know somebody that might benefit from listening to this podcast, then please do spread the word about Good Morning. Good Morning.